You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermaster, Heather. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Throughout most of 1608, Zyman Danziker was a particularly active pirate. In fact, he may have been the most active pirate, at least in the Mediterranean. After his stint in Algiers, teaching the Algerian shipwrights how to build round ships, and gaining the trust and protection of Redouan Pasha, Zyman Danziker went out on the cruise. Now, John Ward may have been responsible for more ships captured and more slaves brought in than Zyman Danziker. His Tunisian fleet, well, it was massive. There were ships under his command sailing out there, capturing ship after ship after ship. They were all very busy, and he had many of them. In fact, according to an agent of King James, a man named Henry Pepwell, Zyman Danziker actually sailed under John Ward's flag for a few months here, but that didn't last long. Danziker set out on his own and immediately began to make a name for himself. Among the pirates that were operating out of Tunis, Danziker became something of a figure of competition and even jealousy, and, yeah, probably some admiration and respect. Danziker distanced himself from the pack so quickly that it was immediately clear he was a cut above most of the captains active in Barbary. He was on the same level as their admiral, as John Ward. Among everyone back in Europe, though, Danziker was becoming something darker. He was becoming a real boogeyman. To the Venetians and Nepalese and the Spanish and English and French, Danziker was quickly supplanting Ward as the most watched and most feared pirate sailing in the Mediterranean. And Danziker still hadn't taken any really serious prizes. He had taken nothing to compare with the Rainiera Isodorina, but the capture of that Venetian vessel was months ago now. Ward was busy in Tunis, outfitting his new flagship. He was content to let his sub-commanders capture whatever they could, but he was busy at home. Meanwhile, though, Danziker was even busier. He was out there on the prowl, and there were a few defections over to Danziker, from sailors among Ward's fleet, even from captains and ships among Ward's fleet. At first there were only a few, maybe they wanted a change of scenery, 
but by the end of today's show, it will become a flood of defections. At first, there were just a few smaller ships, captained by some small-time pirates, that joined up with Danziker just to take a ship that normally would have been too large for them. They would split the booty after the prize was taken and go on about their way. They didn't necessarily join up with Danziker, just allied with him for a time. But imagine that you were a pirate operating a relatively small craft in the Mediterranean. You capture a ship and, oh yay, it's 76 tons of wheat again. And then you see someone with an equally small ship, even perhaps a smaller ship, and they bring in silk and sugar and silver. Well, how did they do it? They did it by teaming up with Zyman Danziker. Ward sat in port tinkering with his baby, but Danziker was out there getting rich and making other people rich as well. Well, it might actually be unfair to call these defections. Ward and Danziker weren't at war with one another. It wasn't as though they were going over to the enemy camp. On the whole, they were friendly. They knew each other. They'd even worked together at one point. Their sub-commanders and crews knew each other as well. They were comrades of a sort. But you have to imagine that John Ward would feel a little pang of trepidation, and maybe even some anger and even fear every time one of his ships, a member of his fleet, sailed in with a rich haul, care of that Dutchman, Zyman Danziker. And most Dutch pirates would have been more comfortable sailing with a Dutch admiral. England and the Netherlands were friendly, yes, but those old national allegiances weren't entirely dead among the pirates, so we see a large number of Dutch captains go over to Zyman Danziker. Danziker himself famously refused to attack Dutch shipping. Now, this wasn't an absolute rule, and we'll see him break that rule today, but on the whole, he tried to stay away from attacking his countrymen. And that combined with a lot of other attitudes and actions of Zyman Danziker prove that, while John Ward claimed to be a Robin Hood of the high seas, complete with Little John, Zyman Danziker was living the life of a noble thief. He did rob from the rich and give to the poor. At least, he did more so than John Ward did. He did spare his countrymen, usually, and... Zyman Danziker was well known for stealing only the cargo belonging to rich investors. The personal possessions and the freedom of his fellow mariners were never, or at least rarely, on the table. Case in point here, when Jack Ward's three ships under Captain Foxley attacked the Charity and the Pearl, what we talked about last time, Foxley tricked the sailors of Charity to hand over their personal wealth. They stole their wages and their earnings on that voyage. They stole... Well, what would feed their families back home? Foxley said that it was to protect those possessions, but he lied. He left those sailors destitute out there. But that was not how Zyman Danziker did business. And he was about to prove it. This is episode 90 of Angels and Devils. So let's return to the story of the charity from last time. The crews of both the Charity and the Pearl were all put aboard Charity when those three captains under Foxley set them free. They had a bit of water and biscuit to keep them alive, but virtually nothing else. Captains Lynx, Powell, and Foxley, all three of them Ward's men, 
took all of their munitions. They took every gun, every piece of shot, every ounce of powder, every sword, every axe. They took everything down to the last dagger. The men of the Pearl and Charity had nothing with which to defend themselves. They barely had enough to feed themselves or even sail safely for shore. This was a desperate situation, and it's one that, to me at least, belies the Robin Hood mythos of John Ward. Now, Ward wasn't there, and perhaps had he been, he would have insisted on a more humane treatment of his victims, especially since they were his countrymen. According to some European agents operating there in Barbary, Ward was as loath to attack English ships as Danziker was to attack the Dutch. But that's not true. Ward did attack English ships all the time. The Little John was an English ship, the York Bonaventure was an English ship, and a number of others. However, that still remains a part of his myth. Regardless, the sailors on board the Charity sailed away. They were defeated and they were dejected. However, they were alive and free, and sometimes that's all one can ask for. They were still in sight of the three pirate ships who had taken them captive, well, now there were four, including the Pearl, when they saw another ship arrive on the horizon. This was a French vessel, and those three pirate ships made right for her. Now that French ship on the horizon made a run for it, but to no avail. She prepared to fight. She even got off a salvo. That's a courageous decision, the decision to fight, especially facing down such long odds. Perhaps the French were unable to communicate with the English pirates, or maybe the pirates just gave her fewer chances to surrender due to their being French, or perhaps the French sailors just preferred to fight. Maybe they wanted to go out honorably. The last image that Captain Bannister the captain of Charity, saw of that French vessel as his ship sailed away was the merchant, master, and mate, all three, hanging from the yardarm. And I wonder about this story. I wonder about Captain Bannister's entire narrative. Remember, he was writing all of this from Lisbon some time later, and it was the first word that his English bosses had received about two of their ships— now, I don't have any evidence to suggest that his story might not be accurate. There is no positive information suggesting that he might not be telling the truth, but it still seems suspect to me. It's, well, what gets me is the timing of the three ship captures. First, the Pearl surrendered immediately. The second, Charity almost put up a fight. They were brave, honorable, courageous Englishmen after all, and they were willing to fight the cargo of their rich investor bosses. But they were also smart. They were smart enough to surrender when it was clear that resistance would be futile. And if you need proof that resistance would have been the foolish path, all of my bosses back in London, you only have to look to that French ship and the death and slavery that followed for the crew. And of course the French would do something that foolish, they're French after all. It's just a little bit too perfect. And Bannister may have been telling the full and honest truth here, but if he is, the saga of charity serves almost as a perfect parable about pirates and how to deal with them. However, even if it isn't true, we still have to believe. It's the story we have. Now I bring this up because things are about to become even less credible. The following day, 
The day after Charity was set free and saw that French vessel captured, the Charity was making her way to the coast of Spain, when they saw another ship. Bannister writes of that time, quote, After we had discharged ourselves of the bad, we were subject to fall into the jaws of worse. Now, being eagerly pursued by a bloody French man-of-war, a pirate like the other of whose cruelty we had heard so much before, we counted ourselves in the arms and grip of death. For two days and a night this French pirate had us in chase, and the wind beginning to grow calm, he was come within a mile of us. The nearer we perceived him, the nearer we judged our sudden destruction. End quote. There were forty or so men on board Charity, and they knew to a man that they had no hope of victory. They had no guns, they had no swords, they didn't even have a dagger on board. Every tool with which they could have defended themselves was taken from them. Now Bannister says that he knew who this devilish French pirate was, but he doesn't tell us who it was. Perhaps it was one of Ward's ships, or perhaps it was one of Danziker's. More likely, though, she was an independent vessel operating out of Barbary or even France. There were French Barbary pirates and French privateers in the region. But even the pirates operating out of Barbary from France were sort of an inclusive and almost nationalistic lot. They tended not to join up with the English or the Dutch. Still, that French vessel, that French pirate, would have had less compunction capturing the crew of charity and selling them into slavery than the Englishmen under Ward did. The English pirates might take your cargo and your guns and most of your food and one of your ships, but the English among them would still hesitate at capturing other Englishmen to be sold into slavery. Even though they were willing to, it wasn't exactly what they wanted to do. But the French didn't share that. Not about the English, I'm sure that they would be less willing to sell other Frenchmen into slavery, but in the same way that the English would be more willing to sell a Frenchman, the French were more willing to sell the English. You get what I'm saying here. The crew of charity, though, resolved that in this moment, they would not be taken alive. They all refused to be enslaved. Every last one of them prayed and made what peace they could with God. Bannister says that they prepared to meet that from whom we can never expect mercy. However, as they prepared to fall on their swords, or perhaps jump ship and try to swim for safety, or perhaps both and let themselves sink into the depths, we can imagine that they fervently hoped for that mercy. Bannister says they were void of all fear, but I have trouble believing that. He writes, quote, when we least thought of help, when all expectation of rescue was frustrate, when we had given our lives and our bodies to ye seas, it pleased God to send inside of us five ships under sail. End quote. So let's take a quick look at the timeline here. Charity and Pearl were attacked on day one. They spent a night in chains and were set free on day two. They saw another ship attacked on that same day. On three, they were pursued by a French ship overnight and all of day four. At the end of day four, they run into five ships under sail. Now, for me, I tend toward the cynical. I try not to, I try to look at the brighter side, but I still tend to see the worst in a situation. 
But in the eyes of everyone aboard the Charity, this was a miracle. They made for those five ships. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know their nationality. They didn't know if they were pirate ships. But they did know that the ship chasing them was a pirate with violence and terror in mind. And you know that saying, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't? In this case, the devil they didn't know may just have been an angel in disguise. They realized that a danger was behind them, and even if danger lay ahead of them, there was at least a potential for rescue. And it was a dangerous move. For a moment, let's set aside the possibility that they were pirates. Let us assume that these five ships were friendly merchantmen. Imagine that you were the captain of a merchant ship in a convoy, and you saw an English ship sailing in fast in waters in which English pirates were known to be nearby. Wouldn't you arm yourself and prepare to defend against attack? Isn't there a possibility that you would fire first and ask questions later? It was the safest course of action. Bannister was well aware of that possibility. But the devil you don't know, and all of that. Bannister writes, quote, We made all the speed we could to get up to them. The Frenchmen, on the contrary, strove as much to cut us off from our purpose. We guessed they, the five ships, might discern our inward mystery by our outward signs. We expressed the lively motions of distressed men by kneeling on the knees and holding up our hands. They, perceiving, though not knowing what we were, in charity made up to us. The Frenchmen, considering, sprang aloof and left us. End quote. So charity sailed for those five ships as fast as possible. They showed themselves to be desperate men by assuming the positions of beggars or maybe of penitents. The strangers saw that and sailed up, so their French pursuer sailed off. And maybe it was a miracle. They weren't pirates. It turned out that they were English ships, four of them at least. One of them was Flemish. They were merchants, and they were friendly. The flagship was the Prosperous, and her master was one Captain Sartop. The men of charity praised God and thanked their saviors. Some of them fell to their knees, some to pray and some to kiss the feet of their saviors. Others fell from sheer relief. They had at long last been saved. And, I mean, weren't these seas just amazingly crowded? Not only the three pirate ships belonging to Ward, but the Charity, the Pearl, that French merchantman that was captured, the French pirate, and these five ships here. That's twelve ships meeting within four days. Not one of them was Spanish, either, and they were just off the coast of Spain. I mean, where's the Coast Guard? Where are these Spanish merchant galleons? I don't know, but they weren't here. However, Charity was finally safe to sail on toward the coast of Spain. They had left the pirates behind and found succor. So, let's leave them to it and turn our attention to Captain Zyman Danziker. Unfortunately, much like John Ward, in the early days of Danziker's pirate career, we don't have any of these wonderful first-hand accounts like that of Charity. There's nothing like that letter telling us the ins and outs of their battles and their struggles. So... The early days of his career are a little bare-bones. Early on, it's hard to say what captured ships in the Mediterranean could actually be attributed to Zyman Danziker. 
Ward's fleet was out there capturing ships. There were other unaffiliated Corsairs on the prowl, so it's tough to track down exactly where Danziker was. There were pirates out of not only Tunis and Algiers, but Tripoli and Salih in Morocco. This was one of those post-war periods when privateers went rogue and turned pirate in droves. This is the major pattern in the story of piracy. We see it time and time again after the Franco-Dutch War and after the War of Spanish Succession, among many others. But right now there were so many pirates sailing that for any single name to stand out, they have to pull off something huge. And Simon Danziker does stand out, because he pulled off what Adrian Tenniswood calls a major coup. Earlier in the year, Simon Danziker was off the coast of Valencia, the east coast of Spain that's just a little bit south of where the Charity was when she was captured, and they were near the Balearic Islands. Danziker spotted a convoy of Spanish ships on the horizon. They were captured, and they were found to be carrying grain. Now, grain was actually a pretty good haul for Danziker's purposes. I may have mocked another 76 tons of corn earlier, but Danziker was happy with it. Remember, he was the admiral of the Algerian navy under Pasha Redouan. He was building a fleet, hoping to rival those in Europe. Any time he captured a cargo of wool or linen or grain or timber, and timber was a big one here, it would be useful for his fleet. They were always happy with guns and powder and shot and cold steel and tools and tar and everything that was needed to run a navy. So the grain was useful here. If it was the grain, though, it would have just been another in a long line of unremarkable hauls that we probably wouldn't remember. However, that grain convoy was carrying two particularly valuable pieces of human cargo. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. On board the flagship Bayina, Zyman Danziker found two young men. One was the son of the Viceroy Sandoval of Majorca, largest of the Balearic Islands. 
The other was the illegitimate son of the Viceroy Viliena of Sicily. They would fetch impressive ransoms, but even that was nothing compared to what they were carrying. They had in their possession 300,000 Spanish crowns in gold. Now, this was a common tactic employed by the Spanish. More than a few times in our story, pirates have, and will in the future, stumble upon some unbelievably rich prize. They were totally unsuspecting of it. The Spanish did this a lot. You know, just a normal grain convoy, nothing to see here, move along, move along. Certainly no rich, noble sons on board with a chest filled with gold coins. This was the exact opposite of their huge, well-armed treasure fleets. They were hiding in plain sight. And usually, presumably, they made it to their destination with no trouble. They continued doing it for decades and decades, so we have to assume that it usually went well. But imagine what sort of a dramatic situation this must have been for those two young men. Unfortunately, we don't have a first-hand account like that of Captain Bannister. All we have are the official Spanish reports, but what must that have been like for young Sandoval and Villena? Imagine their furious arguments on board with the captain of the Beina. Imagine them ordering him to sail on and make a run for it, or to fight the pirates when it finally came down to it. Imagine them in their cabin, furiously trying to hide a huge chest of gold, or maybe they rushed to one of the more humble cabins on the ship and traded clothes with some of the men. Maybe they hid their gold and swords away and tried to blend in with the crew, they perhaps locked the door, and maybe they sat there preparing to kill to keep their treasure safe. Because this wasn't their money, they weren't just two rich boys on board. This was almost certainly a private payment from Sicily to Majorca, or maybe Valencia. This would have been of the utmost importance, more than likely. And now, once they were found, it was in the hands of Captain Zyman Danziker. He returned home after his raid on Baena, in possession of 300,000 crowns, two noble hostages, and a convoy of grain ships. The Pasha, Redawan, commended Danziker for this, and it earned the Dutch pirate a new name in Algiers. In Turkish, they called him Dali Rais. In English, the Devil Captain. Suddenly, back in Europe, his name started appearing in a bunch of official communications, where once Jack Ward would have taken credit, or maybe taken the blame for something like this, Zyman Danziker was receiving both for all of his exploits. And he went back out there. The devil captain went back on the prowl. He captured another grain convoy. He captured more than a few merchant ships, and he even began making grandiose gestures against those who he felt had wronged him. He threatened to blockade the harbor of the fort at Ibiza, another of the Balearic Islands. He did sail around for a while, looking very intimidating with what appeared to be a growing fleet. One of the ships was in fact that grain convoy's refitted flagship, Baena. But what's so striking about Danziker, even though we have fewer accounts that have filtered down to us, is his well, his style. Remember in Harry Potter and the, I think it's the Order of the Phoenix, 
when Dumbledore summons his pet phoenix and vanishes in a brilliant flash of fire, and Kingsley says, You may not like him, Minister, but you have to admit, Dumbledore's got style. Well, that sort of sentiment was being quietly expressed there in Europe. There was something almost fun. There was something theatrical about how Zyman Danziker operated. First of all, he was less prone to taking slaves. And second, whenever he did take a ship, well, it kind of reminds me of Blackbeard. He built this larger-than-life, terrifying pirate menace image. He would sail in and overwhelm a ship with the mere presence of himself, and then he would command the sea like a stage. He would pull off what were some frankly impressive nautical maneuvers and then bellow over commands in a huge sea commander's voice. One captain, a captain of a ship called the Swan, reported that Danziker bellowed over in what was kind of a hybrid of English and Dutch, quote, Aha, Swan, thou binst mine, end quote. And he would leave most of his ships behind and sail on alone to meet whatever ship he was trying to capture. But then he would tell the ship's master to strike sail and follow him. Now, Danziker and whomever the captain might be might deliberate on that point, but if they did, then Danziker's fleet would ensnare the ship in a net. The captain would, invariably, in that situation, knowing that that was going to be the outcome, strike sail and follow Danziker. Now, I don't want to lionize Zyman Danziker here. He was a thief, he was just a pirate, and he would kill men if he had to, to take their cargo. But much like Blackbeard, the devil captain built an image that ensured, well, more often than not, that he wouldn't have to kill anyone. So, Captain Danziker was building a name for himself in those early months, not just in Algiers and not just in Barbary, but in Europe. And here he began to rival Ward in notorious notoriety. As I said, those early months were a bit bare bones, but now let's return again to the charity, sailing toward the coast of Spain with that convoy. Captain Bannister's letter, which would be written later, still had a final chapter. After that chase from a French pirate and the miracle of a rescue at sea, Bannister writes, quote, Life is not permanent. No more are our fortunes. We have joy in this moment and sorrow in the next. We come crying into the world and we must go weeping out. Scarce had our joy felt an hour of embracement when presently we might find ourselves the third time to be had in chase by a man of war and his pinnace, who, drawing near up to us, we perceived was Captain Danziker of Algiers. His ship is so potent that it seemed to us resistless, for he carried fifty-five pieces of ordnance besides forty Turks. Comes he amongst the thickest of our fleet as if he had the power to sweep us away with his breath. End quote. It was five days after Charity had been attacked the first time when Zyman Danziker found them. It was mere hours after that French man-o-war gave up the chase, 
and Danziker found Charity in the company of five other armed ships. They weren't men of war, they weren't even Coast Guard ships, but they were merchant ships, so they had guns, and they did have the ability to surround Danziker's vessel and bombard her. But Danziker was sailing a large ship, filled with ordnance and men who were capable of deadly violence. Resistless, Bannister calls it. The Dutch pirate could have blown them out of the water had he chosen to, but of course that's not the goal in piracy. Instead, Simon Danziker just sailed in among the other ships and allowed himself to be surrounded, as though he could blow them away with his breath. The fleet, this merchant convoy, could have opened fire on him. They could have hit him from every angle, except for two things. The first here is purely tactical. Imagine a group of six ships. They would be arrayed sort of like a circle of wagons here. Ships were a bit more difficult to maneuver than a wagon, but generally in a rough circle, if more spread out. Then, a large man-of-war sails into their center. There was little they could do to stop Danziker from doing this. They weren't lined up or prepared for battle. But now Danziker was surrounded. They could have opened fire. But then, what happens if they miss? Arrayed in that rough circle, the possibility of friendly fire would go up significantly, and most of their shots would have missed unless they were in very close quarters. Even 200 years later, even 300 years later, most naval shots missed. It was very hard to make a direct hit on another ship. If you wanted to, you would have to get in very close. But if any of these ships got in close enough to guarantee a hit on Danziker, well, Simon Danziker had those 400 men on board. Bannister continues, quote, He caused his followers to waft us amain with their glistening swords, threatening to sink us the one after the other if at his command we did not immediately strike. End quote. Simon Danziker had every man on board lift his saber into the air and scream threats at the men on board. So, you know, getting in close was a poor idea. So, tactically, it made some sense for Simon Danziker to sail in. He was still surrounded. He hadn't, you know, taken the hill in command of the battlements, but it was a bad situation for Charity and her five companions. The second thing that kept them from fighting, though, was Danziker himself. They knew who he was. He was the devil captain. He was that larger-than-life, theatrically threatening villain. And compare that to Jack Ward. Now, Ward was scary, make no mistake, but he was scary because he would kill you, and he would sell you as a slave. He was brutal. But Zyman Danziker had that certain villainous panache that we've come to expect from pirates. I mean, who would have the guts to just sail into an assembled group of ships and demand their surrender? And not only to demand it, but actually expect it of them. That person is someone of whom you should be very afraid, or at least that's what Simon Danziker was hoping those ships would think. Perhaps it's just because Halloween is coming up, but when I think about the two of them, I think about the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street franchises, Freddy and Jason. John Ward is sort of a Jason character. He's quiet, he's brutal, 
He's deadly, and that makes him terrifying. But Zyman Danziker over here is much more of a Freddy Krueger. He's a lot more theatrical. He enjoys the thrill of the hunt and making you afraid, and that's what makes you fail. He doesn't just hit you with a giant machete or a chainsaw or a harpoon or a spear or any of the other tools that Jason used. He likes to scare you in your dreams, and that is how he gets you. And that is, you know, that's bad. You don't want that to happen. But Freddy Krueger, from our point of view, years in the future or watching it on a TV screen, well, he's a lot more fun. He's a fun villain. And that's what Zyman Dansker had going here. And the fleet of English ships and that one Flemish vessel, well, they felt it too. Master Sartop, the admiral of the fleet, struck sail and waited for Danziker, as commanded. Now, two of his ships, two of the English vessels that were sailing under Sartop, sailed in beside him before Danziker was able to get close, and they begged him to hoist sail and prepare to fight. They believed that if they worked together, they could best him. And they might have been right. They probably had the numerical advantage in guns, or at least angles from which to shoot down Danziker. But Sartop refused. He had made up his mind to surrender here. And, frankly, that was probably the smart move. Now, the Flemish ship and Charity were to the leeward of Sartop and Danziker. That means that any attempt to run, had they hoisted sail and made a break for it, they would have fallen right in the path of Zyman Danziker. They had no way to escape. The other ships, though, saw in Sartop's surrender a chance to escape, and they took it. The three who were downwind hoisted sail and made a break for it. Now, they didn't have the happiest of fates in the end. They were, a little bit later on, captured by pirates. Now, that's not surprising, considering the shocking density of pirate population here off the coast of Spain in 1608, and because they were fools, they fought those pirates, and they were sold as slaves back in Barbary. But Sartop, the Flemish vessel, and the charity had fallen into the hands of Zyman Danziker, the devil captain, notorious arch-pirate and scourge of the Mediterranean, one of the most feared men alive. Now, Captain Sartop was safe here. Danziker cut a deal with him. Bannister says that Danziker promised, quote, he would never ransack nor pillage anything from him, end quote. He made that deal on the condition that Sartop surrender. It's why he refused to hoist sail and fight. And it was intended to convince this little fleet of his to do likewise. That's what Danziker wanted. He wanted everything to go smoothly here, and if the admiral surrendered, the rest of the fleet was likely to. Now, that didn't work out. Those smaller ships ran, but, well, I don't know who captured them. But I like to imagine it was another ship under Danziker's command who was waiting out there to capture anyone foolish enough to flee. I enjoy picturing Simon Danziker as that cunning and that devious. But again, he kept to his word here. He spared Sartop because Sartop did as was asked. Now, the fate of that Flemish vessel is a bit ambiguous. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it doesn't go unscathed here. And I realize that earlier I said Danziker famously never attacked Dutch ships except for rare occasions. 
I also realize that this is the first Dutch ship we have seen him come in contact with, and he takes it immediately. So, maybe I just prefer Freddy Krueger to Jason Voorhees, and I am giving him more credit than was his due. But then again, keep that in mind, because I may not be. But Charity had been ransacked and left without any munitions. Dansker sailed up to Charity and told Bannister and his forty or so men that they were commanded to strike sail and follow him. Bannister obviously agreed. He didn't have much choice here. But Bannister tells us, quote, We entreated him to be good unto us and told him that we had been robbed by the Tunis men of war, Confederates of Ward, only five days before. Captain Danziker demanded of Master Sartop whether the relation of our surprisal was true or no, who affirmed it to be true. When Danziker, like a proud, yet we may call him an honest pirate, told us that since the men of Tunis had us in hand, he scorned to rob a hospital, to afflict where there was misery before, or to make prey of them who had nothing left. End quote. Don't you just love that? Danziker sailed in boldly, demanded surrender, and when he received that surrender, he stuck to his own personal code of honor. Danziker sent a message over to Charity. He said that he would spare them if only they shot off a three-gun salute to him. Now, the Charity didn't have any guns. They had, quote, not so much left whereby to gratify his courtesy, end quote. I can only imagine the terror and panic that ran through the men. What do we do? We can't do as he asks. Oh, God, he's going to kill us. So Bannister sent the messenger back to tell Danziker that they didn't have any guns. All of their guns had been taken. So Danziker let them go free. I think this was an incredibly clever move. I think Danziker was testing Charity to see if they were lying. If they had three guns to fire, they were lying, and he would have taken everything they had on board, including the crew. And I know that I may be giving him too much credit here, but that sounds terribly likely. Before the Charity left, though, the crew of the Pearl, who was on board Charity at this point, decided to ask Danziker a favor. They sent a messenger over, and that messenger said, quote, how uncertain was our hope, and how continual was the danger, since every ship we saw we must fear to be a pirate, we entreated of Danziker that he would be pleased to set us ashore. End quote. And would you believe it, Zyman Danziker agreed. He agreed to take the men of the Pearl on board and set sail for the coast of Spain, where he would set them free. He did so as an act of kindness to ensure that they wouldn't be bothered by any further pirates. And then do you know what he did? He gave them money. He gave every member of the crew of the Pearl four shillings to ensure that they could make it safely to civilization. I mean, what? Can you believe that? I kinda can't. I feel like Captain Bannister was lying to us in the letter. I don't know why I don't have a conflicting account here, but, I mean, really? He took this crew to shore, and he paid them money. It's like, look, guys, I was going to rob you, but then I didn't, so here's some money. Is this guy actually Robin Hood? Is the real Robin Hood of the high seas a Dutchman rather than an Englishman? That's 
kind of a line in the sand, right? I mean, there will be an English pirate much later on who fits this Robin Hood myth a little, but I'm saying it now. These English pirates who died hundreds of years ago, well, they have to up their game. If they want to hold on to that little bit of English mythology of the noble robber, they have to do a lot better than they are right now, than they did during the entire buccaneering era. Because as it stands, the title of most noble pirate ever, Robin Hood of the High Seas, that goes to Simon Danziker. And as for the Flemish ship, Danziker did take some of her cargo. She was carrying mostly corn, but a few Mediterranean goods as well. And Danziker took some of that corn and some of the wine and water on board. And he gave it to the charity! I see you're short of provisions here, so I'm going to literally rob from the rich and give to the poor here. This guy is amazing. And he did take some of their other cargo for himself to pad his coffers, but he didn't take all of it. And he made certain that everything he did take belonged to the bosses, to their rich investors. He refused to touch anything that belonged to, quote, the adventures of private men, end quote. Ward's man, Foxley, lied and cheated and stole everything from the crew of the charity. And I mean that's super piratical, lying, cheating, stealing, that's kind of what the whole game is about. But then you think about how he left their children to go hungry because their fathers had no money left at all. And then Danziker. He took extra care to ensure that that did not happen. I know I'm gushing here, but I just don't care. I love this pirate. Charity was allowed to sail away. They had only their own 20 men left on board, and holds that were filled with at least a bit of... Well, actually, I'd like to address something here. I was recently corrected, but I'm less than sure about it, but apparently supplies on board a ship should be called properly victuals, even though they still had the French spelling of victuals. I've heard people from certain linguistic regions of the United States say victuals, and honestly, I had no idea what they were talking about, but there are a lot of strange occasions when pronunciations would jump from England in 1700 to some of the more remote mountain communities in North America that just never changed. But Charity finally had vittles to make it safely to shore, or, if they wished, probably enough to make it home. But that wasn't what Bannister had in mind. As we know, they stopped in Spain so their captain could write a letter explaining just why they had lost all of their cargo. You don't want to show up with nothing in your holds and expect your bosses to understand without at least a little bit of warning. But Prosperous, the flagship, and that Flemish vessel, well, they were ordered to sail off with Captain Danziker. They were not a hospital. Bannister writes, quote, Mr. Sartop and his whole company, he, Danziker, carried away directly for Algiers, where what will succeed unto them is yet uncertain. And I am fairly certain that their uncertain fate was to join up with Simon Danziker and turn pirate on the Barbary Coast. A part of me suspects that this may have been the plan the entire time, but I don't know that. Regardless, if they weren't pirates before, I think that those two vessels will be now. But at long last, Bannister and the crew of Charity were finally safe. As for Danziker, though, when he returned to Algiers, he began to hear troubling rumors. 
he was a hero, at least to the people of Algiers. He was on top of the world in the Mediterranean. But the word was rumbling around that Captain Ward had been gone a little too long. He'd left Tunis some time before. His giant Venetian flagship, Rainiera Isodorina, hadn't been seen in some time. Quite a long time, in fact. And then, even more troubling, rumors began to spread that the Sodorina was sunk in waters in the Aegean, and that Captain Ward was dead. Now, Danziker and Ward may have been rivals at times, but they knew each other and were, after a fashion, friendly. And more to the point, it ensured security from all sides, to have more pirates who were at least relatively friendly operating on the coast of Barbary. Should the Ottoman Empire decide to exert their influence, Zyman Danziker would be happy to have Ward sailing alongside him. Should Spain or Venice or France or England or the Netherlands decide to mount an offensive against Tunis or Algiers, they would be happy to have somewhere to run and perhaps friends to help them fight. So if Ward was dead, this was a deeply troubling rumor. Next time, we'll find out exactly what John Ward had been up to ever since he left those French and Italian waters so many months ago, and we will discuss his fate and the end of Captain Jack Ward. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has become a patron on Patreon, Everybody who has left us a rating or a review or recommended the show on the internet or in real life, without all of you I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out yet, if you have yet to check them out, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.